Well, it is a place that is so gruesome that you can almost feel the heat brushing up against your, your face as you read it off of the page. You can almost smell sulfur as the smoke rose up into the blood-red sky. This is a place that was immortalized forever for what is referred to as its wickedness. And I just think that there are all kinds of extremes to our text this morning in Genesis chapter 19. Of course, what I'm referring to are cities that we read of there known of as Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think there are all kinds of, of extremes when we read about Sodom and Gomorrah. I think one very obvious one is what is evoked in a lot of people's minds are generations of angry, hacked-off, hellfire and brimstone ministers who want to scare you into making a decision of some kind. I think the other extreme is, if, is, especially if you're a minister or even if you are a Christian, it's something that you don't really want to speak about very much because, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a feel-good chapter exactly. And yet I just want to read it for us this morning in Genesis chapter 19. And to take a brand new look at what we read of here as if it is the first time that we've ever read this. And so we begin in Genesis chapter 19, starting in the 24th verse. There we read that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all of the valley and all of the inhabitants of those cities. And even everything that grew upon the ground. But Lot's wife behind them looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham rose early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all of the land of the valley. And behold, it says that the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Yeah, not exactly a feel-good passage, is it? But I mean, it just begs the question when we read a text like this, how could this happen? Why would this happen to two and also other cities that were around it? I mean, what was going on in these cities that this would be the aftermath of it? Well, Sodom is especially what is referred to here, as well as its sister city, Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were two of the five cities that were referred to as the cities of the plain in the valley of Siddam. Well, one chapter earlier, we find three mysterious visitors appearing to Abraham and to Sarah with the good news that one year from now, you're going to have a son of your very own at last. And so after they have left Abraham and Sarah's house and their presence. Scripture shows them standing and they're overlooking a vast multitude of land. And they're overlooking Sodom, it says. And how Sodom is referred to is, is that their sin was very grave and there was an outcry against them. And so as these three mysterious figures, 
which now in chapter 19 are now two. We don't know what happened to the other one. I guess that they had left for some reason, but, but it's very interesting how as these two mysterious visitors reach the gates of Sodom, now they are being revealed to us as two angels. And so we have two angels who are entering into the gates of Sodom. And as they are doing so, there is a man who's standing at the gate whose name is Lot. Now, as we know, Lot is, is a nephew of Abraham. And Lot is a very hospitable man. As he sees the two angels coming into town, he says that, you know what, my house is your house. And so he brings them into his house. He prepares a feast for them. He washes all of their feet. And then as it's getting late, he says, you know what, I, I just want you to stay here overnight. You can go in the morning, but I want you to stay in my house tonight, and, and I'm not going to take no for an answer. So he's just a very, very hospitable individual. Well, as they have had a meal, and now they have conversed, it is getting very late in the evening, and they're getting ready to all um, go to sleep and to turn in for the night. And just as they are doing this, they can hear the sound coming from outside of footsteps. They can hear the sound of voices, and those footsteps and voices begin getting louder and louder until they are right there up against Lot's house. And I mean, this is where it gets dark and disturbing very, very quickly in the text. This is where we begin to see the darkness of Sodom. Whereas Lot opens up the door, what is looking back at him is this huge mob of men. And as it says in Genesis that, that every man of Sodom went there, that is no exaggeration. Literally, what we're talking about here is a mob of people comprised of every single man living in the city of Sodom. We're talking about old people. We're talking about young people. We're speaking about wealthy people. We're speaking about poor people. We're speaking about everyday common people, peasants, and we're talking about rulers and luminaries in their city. Every single man in Sodom has this house surrounded. And what is coming out of their mouths is very disturbing and it's scary and it's dark, where they say, where are the men who went inside your house? We want you to bring them out to us right now so that we may know them. And as it says, we want to know them, that does not mean we want to sit down and have tea with them. It means that we want to do the absolute worst to them. And by the way, this mob is not going to take no for an answer either. And so we can see a lot of darkness there, but we also see a lot of darkness in Lot's compromise with them. And we marvel at this as Lot says that I will let you have my very own children and my daughters. You can do whatever you want to to them as long as you leave my guest alone. And it's just so much a commentary of, of the um, darkness and depravity of the city when, when even a person who we kind of look to as a protagonist is the one saying, you can, I mean, do your absolute worst to my own daughters. 
And it has a lot to say also how even after Lot and his daughters have gotten out of, of um, Sodom, even afterwards his daughters have an episode where they get him drunk. And we all know the outcome of that. And it seems like even after they have left Sodom, they still have a lot of Sodom in them. And yet after Lot has, has made this morbid compromise though, what the response of the men in this angry mob is, is stand back, get out of our way, or we will do much worse to you than we will to your guest. And so the angels, as we all know, reach and they bring Lot back inside his house and the angels strike all of these men and now they're blind and they're stumbling around in the dark. They have no idea where they're going. And it is in this exact moment where the angels look at Lot and say, are there any other loved ones that you have? And then one of the most chilling sentences that have ever been composed where, where it says, you need to get out of this city as soon as possible. And that's because we are about to destroy this place. And so we can see a lot of darkness in the city of Sodom. And yet, as it often goes, though, with these stories that we have heard all of our lives in the Word of God, somehow, it seems like often how the more that we feel as if we know the story, the least familiar with it we tend to be sometimes. I think a lot of times Sodom and Gomorrah is looked upon as just this one isolated random incident, or that it's just referring to one group of people in the world. And yet this is not just one random incident that is being isolated in Scripture. But rather what this is, is a very specific attitude of the heart. What this is, is a darkness that is violent darkness. It is a rabid and a defiant kind of darkness. Whereas they had said in their own words, what, what that attitude is, is get out of our way we are going to revel as deep in this darkness as we can possibly go. And there is nothing that you can say and nothing you can do that can ever change that. And I think one of the most unspeakable indictments of this city, and it's very unspeakable, and I would much rather prefer that, that it goes unmentioned because it's so, I mean, as I said, it is unspeakable, but, but what we have here is a nationwide agreement that we are going to commit angel rape. This is what they want to do in Sodom. And so can you just feel all of the darkness that is in this city right now? And yet having said that though, this is not the only darkness that we find in the city of Sodom. In fact, if the depravity of Sodom were a puzzle, you know, like, like a thousand-piece um, puzzle, what we have in, in Genesis chapter 19 is only roughly 300 of those pieces. And if we want to understand the other 700 of those um, components of the puzzle, we've got to go outside of Genesis into the days of the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, I think about a prophet Isaiah, as in his time, what, what his society looked like. 
was it was a generation that would call what is evil good, and they would call what was good evil. They would look at what is light and call that darkness, and they would look at the darkness and say that is light. They would look at lies as truth, and truth is lies. And yet, we see this exact same attitude in the nation of Israel, where it says in one place in the book of Isaiah, and, and again, remember what that attitude was, is, is get out of our way. We are going to revel as deep in this defiant darkness as we want to. And here's what the attitude was of much of the nation of Israel, as they at least in a sense, had surrounded God's messengers and his prophets. They, they had completely had them surrounded. And what they had said to them was, is that they say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right, but rather speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. And then hear, hear these words, get out of our way. We want to hear no more about the Holy One of heaven. Get out of our way. Tell us what is false. And is it any coincidence whatsoever that, that as God looks at this attitude in his own people, that he, he calls Judah and Jerusalem Sodom and Gomorrah? I want us all to consider another prophet whose name was Jeremiah where Jeremiah also witnesses a lot of corruption in the nation of Israel in his own time, where there is a lot of injustice towards those in society who were oppressed. And much of the religious empire was, was among the most excited proponents of that injustice. It was a religious society that had seen many people being oppressed and it didn't matter how damning the evidence was. What their response was is, well, I didn't see anything. How about you? Did you see anything? Well, as a matter of fact, I didn't see anything, even though I saw it with my own eyes. And what comes out of God's mouth in response to this corruption in his nation is, he says that they walk in lies and they strengthen those who do evil. How they believe lies and they are encouraging those who do evil in the land. And is it any coincidence whatsoever that what God calls them is not Israel, but Sodom and Gomorrah? And yet, if we really want to understand what was going on in Sodom, though, we, we especially have to go to the book of Ezekiel. And if you have your Bibles, I want to go to Ezekiel chapter 16 for just a moment. Ezekiel in the 16th chapter, this is a chapter where God once again is likening Israel to a wife. Now God, of course, has given Israel all of this love and grace and abundance and prosperity. He has treated her as if she were a queen. And yet what God calls her because of her idolatry is a spiritual prostitute. He says that I have given all of these wonderful blessings to you, but it is these very blessings that you have taken and have made idols out of. I have even given you sons and you are sacrificing them, killing them as you worship these, these idols. 
And yet notice, though, in Ezekiel chapter 16, starting in the 49th verse, that God specifically names Sodom's sins. Where in verse 49 of Ezekiel 16, God says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. They had excess of food and prosperous ease. Notice this. But they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and they, did a, and they did an abomination before me. And so God says, I removed them when I saw this. Now notice very clearly in this text as God exposes what was wrong in Sodom and also what was wrong in, in, in Jerusalem. Notice that these are not sexual crimes God is referring to here. Rather, these are spiritual crimes of the heart. Where God is looking at this nation that had once been so humble, once poor in spirit, but now they are so pompous and self-reliant and they're gluttonous on the stuff that they now have. And in fact, all of this pride and arrogance and gluttony on materialism, it has blinded their eyes to all of the desperation of the oppressed in their society, and they are just stumbling around in the dark, and they don't know where they're going. And I just can't tell you how sobering this is for our own society in the world of today. Because what are we, we really learning here in Ezekiel 16? It's that when the people of God turn a blind eye to the poor and to the needy, this is an abomination in the eyes of God, equal with, with an entire village surrounding a house demanding to do what they wanted to do. That when we become arrogant and self-reliant as Christians, this is a form of spiritual witchcraft. That when we worship a lot of the stuff that has come to us from the hand of Almighty God, this is a form of spiritual sodomy. And notice what comes before what God reveals about Sodom. In verse 46, again, he is speaking about Sodom. In verse um, in 47, rather, he says, Not only did you walk in Sodom's ways and do according to their abominations, but within a very little time, you were more corrupt. Listen to this. You were more corrupt in all of your ways than Sodom was. Verse 48, God says, As I live, declares the Lord your God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. You see, God is saying this to his people the way that he is because this was a once holy nation. I mean, this was that country of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a nation God rescued out of slavery, marched through a promised land, waded through a Jordan River and the Red Sea, rescued so many times over, provided for. And you see, what we are, are hearing from the mouth of God in so many other words is this. That with more spiritual blessing and with more opportunity and privilege comes a greater responsibility. As a minister, I have, you know, I have a promise in Scripture that, that I'm going to have a stricter judgment 
simply because I have taken it upon myself to be a proclaimer of what God has said. You see, with greater blessing and opportunity, regardless of who we are as Christians, with, with more blessing and opportunity comes a greater responsibility. As it says elsewhere in Scripture, that it says judgment begins with the household of God. And what God is saying to his people, Jerusalem, is, is that you have become so corrupted, so dark, that if Sodom were to see you today, they would be blushing with offense. Your darkness and corruption have now officially exceeded that of Sodom and that of Gomorrah. And sadly, this is what continues even as Jesus roams the earth in the first century, where Jesus is performing miracles all over the, the region. They see his miracles with their own eyes, but we read on one occasion, though, how, how, how he performs a miracle. He helps a person, and a whole entire city surrounds Jesus on a hillside. The whole entire town, the whole entire village has Jesus surrounded. And they're saying to him, Jesus, we need you to get out, get out of our city and never come back ever again. Well, that is to be expected if that's not in Israel. And so he goes into Israel where there is a lot more um, opportunity and a spiritual privilege to have heard and to have known. Jesus does all kinds of miracles in his hometown, but they reject him. They try to throw him off of a cliff. Jesus does one miracle after another all, all over the place. And yet what the response is, is that he's doing it by the power of Satan. Or on another occasion, what, what a lot of people say is, Lord, give us more signs because we're not... If, you know, we've only seen about a hundred miracles. We need another miracle to be convinced that you are who you say you are. And, it's, and as Jesus looks at his own people, they have been blinded by self-righteousness and by hypocrisy and by nationalism. And they're just wandering around in the darkness, really having no idea where they're going. And so finally, we come to Matthew chapter 11 and what Jesus says here, Matthew chapter 11, this is, of course, where he refers to a lot of the regions where he's been and to cities where he has performed miracles and they have not received the kingdom of, of, of um, heaven. And what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 and in verse 23 is, he says that, that you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have existed until this day. But I tell you, Jesus says, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. With greater responsibility and privilege comes a greater responsibility upon us. And yet I think what Jesus is also saying to um, them as well as to us, though, is also this. That Sodom is a lot closer to you than you would care to admit. What he says to me and to you this morning is that Sodom is a lot closer to us than we would care to entertain. 
You see, we're living in the richest, most prosperous nation that has ever existed. And yet it's also been referred to as one of the most self-interested and, and selfish civilizations that has ever existed. Amanda and I spent a year living in a communist nation. I have walked the, the Las Vegas Strip only to discover that we would be treated better in communist China, in Sin City, Las Vegas, than in a church in the Bible Belt in the middle of Texas. Every single day that we live in this world, we, we have many opportunities. We, we are surrounded by all of these people who are oppressed. People who Jesus says are hungry, who are thirsty, who are naked, and, and who are in some way in a jail, whether literal or metaphorically, and, and who are oppressed strangers. And Jesus makes it very clear to us that, that the only ones who will enter into my kingdom are the ones who feed them, who clothe them, who visit them, who love them, who give them good news of great joy and peace. Good. And that's because after all, all the while, while, while you were feeding them and clothing them, you were doing that to me. And what I love most about this Westchester church, if I could just choose one thing that I love most about each and every one of you, is how much you love the oppressed. I mean, you don't just help those who are needy, but you get excited about helping poor people in this church. You are so generous in the way that you sacrifice of your time and your resources and your gas and your car. And I mean, God is smiling down upon this church. I can name names, but I'm always going to um, omit people accidentally. I'm just going to say all of you. Well done, good and faithful servants. Let's keep it this way. Because if we keep it this way, that's what we're going to hear Jesus saying to us. And yet, last of all this morning though, what I think is so oftentimes missed when we speak about Sodom and Gomorrah is I believe the most important part of the whole story and the whole lesson for us. And that is Abraham's compassion. I mean, Abraham knows that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. He knows that the sins of Sodom are grave and dark and depraved. And yet, what is Abraham doing before Sodom and Gomorrah go down in flames? Is he cursing them? Is he condemning them all to hell? Is he calling them names or, or ostracizing them? Rather, what we find Abraham doing is praying for them. I mean, he intercedes for them six times and he says, God, if I can be so bold as to pray and to intercede on behalf of this city, Sodom, let's just suppose a hypothetical that you were to find 50 righteous people in that city. Would you spare that city? And God says, yes, I would. Abraham says, okay, God, I think I was too stringy before. What if, listen, what if there's 45 people in that city who love you? 
God says, I will spare it in a New York second. And he just keeps interceding for, um, there, on the, there on their behalf. What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And God says, for the sake of 10 people who, who love me and who are, are um, faithful to me, I will spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And the attitude of Abraham is, it, with regard to Sodom, is that, is that the God who I serve is not willing that anybody should perish. God takes no delight in the death of those who do not know him. And I just wonder if in our own individual prayers of today, if we were to mentally process that if the whole city of even wicked Nineveh had repented in the days of Jonah, God, there has to be 50 people in Westchester who are seeking you this morning. There has to be 45 people. There has to be 20 people. There has to be 10 people in the city of Westchester, in Chester County, who are seeking you, God. Bring them to me. Bring me to them. Give me the words, even in this chaotic time, because I believe that there are people outside of these windows who are seeking you. Bring them to me, God. Let me love them. Really what we see in all of this here this morning is, is, the, is the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Where even though his kinsmen, Hebrews, are rejecting Jesus in droves, they are, are conducting a persecution against his church, Paul's attitude towards them is that, God, I have such great sorrow in my heart. I, I have such unceasing anguish in my soul. Because I love my, my own people, the Israelites, so much, even though they are rejecting you and despising you, I would be willing to sign up right now to spend eternity in hell. If it meant every one of them knowing you for all of eternity on this earth as well as in the one to come. Yes, homosexual people have sinned have reveled in the darkness and need Jesus. Just like heterosexual people have sinned, have reveled in the darkness and need Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, I heard a minister and he told a story about how a man came up to him in that church and said, listen, preacher, you don't speak about sin nearly enough. You need to preach a sermon about, and he gave him specific things, specific sins that, that he needed to speak out against. And the preacher said, you know what, I'll tell you what, I'll do it. I want you to make me a list of the three sins that you struggle with the very most. And you have my word, I will speak against it one week from today. Well, obviously that's not what that guy meant. He means he wants to hear about how other people have sinned and how much greater and superior he is than them. And yet the grave reality is, is that you have sinned severely. Is that I have reveled in the darkness in a grave manner in the past. Is that we all, all of us, regardless of who we are, we need Jesus every moment of our life. And for all of us who have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, Jesus has washed all of that away. 
And it hears the reality, though, for us just as much. Is that regardless of who we are or what we have done in our past life, regardless of, of how we stumble and sin still, every last one of us comes into the church having fled a Sodom of some kind. We have been blinded in some way, shape, or form by sin and by our own darkness and depravity. Every last one of us has a Gomorrah that we were once enslaved to that is now seducing us and wooing us late in the evening to look back upon and to yearn for and to return to, even if it means walking right into a sweltering inferno that will engulf us and that will destroy us. And so... Um, a couple of things as we close this morning. One is I can just hear the words of Jesus as he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. She had been told along with, with Lot and their family, do not look back no matter what you do. Do not look back. We don't know why she looks back. Maybe it was in fear that maybe it's getting close to us and, and I'm afraid. Maybe it's out of curiosity that what, what exactly, you know, is it still standing or is it just completely gone? Maybe it is longing for her possessions that, that had been left behind, but, but regardless of what it was, she looked behind at her Sodom. And it says that she became a pillar of salt, that um, a sulfur in the Flames had just encrusted around her somehow, and she was rendered incapacitated as a result of that. See, that is what Satan wants more than anything, for us to look back on our Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, I can also, to Lot's credit, though, if we were to adopt a sentence that he uttered as the men surrounded that house, remember what he said? He said, I beg of you, do not act so wickedly. I beg of you, do not act so wickedly. And I just want to ask us, what would our war against sin look like? What would our Christian lives look like if the next time we were wanting to speak ill of the oppressed or to ignore a plight of the poor, or that we had turned a blind eye to the need of, of, of all of those who are oppressed. Or we wanted to become self-reliant in some way. Or we wanted to once again become who we used to be and live as we once did if we were to repeat the words of Lot to our own selves. I beg of you, do not act so wickedly. I close this morning simply with the words of the Apostle Paul. And so Paul says in 2 Timothy, flee youthful lust. Flee youthful lust just like Lot fled Sodom and Gomorrah. Flee your youthful passions and instead pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on God from a pure heart.
Sodom and Gomorrah is a lot closer to us than we would imagine. And yet the good news is to all of those who who flee our yesterdays and draw near to God, God is going to draw near to us and make our yesterdays something long ago in our past. 